Matthew chapter 11, verses um, 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And actually, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came uh, to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and overturned the table of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayers to, for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribe heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. And as they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come to you and lift up our cares, our weakness, and our worries. We lift up to you our disappointments and our fears, our joys and our blessing. Because you are God and we are not. And that is a good thing. Father, our perspective is small. Our Opinions are jaded. Our truth is limited. But Father, your understanding is full and your wisdom is complete and your power is uh, unmatched and unrivaled. And you are our Father. And we thank you that we can call upon you, Abba Father, and you hear our voice amongst, amongst the nations as they rage and, and tremble. Father, you hear the voice of your children, and you're a God who works. Father, this morning we lift up Karen New to you. Lord, as she is in the twilight of her life, I pray that you would strengthen her body, give her comfort, give her uh, rest, give her joy, as she listens to the words of scripture that are read to her and sung with her, as she enjoys the sweet voices of her daughters and the love of her husband and the laughter of her grandchildren. These are precious sweet days. May the new and the Brogdon family just cherish these moments. But Father, most of all, in Karen's life, that you would strengthen her hope of the gospel. For she is confident that when she closed her eyes in death on this side, she will open them in the presence of Jesus and all the saints that have gone before. And they will welcome all the saints that will come after. And God will dwell with our people. And Karen will be full of joy because she is with Christ. And that is to gain. Father, we lift up to you this morning, Virgil. 
Virgil, whom we love and we respect. Father, he needs you. He needs you to guide and direct the minds of the surgeons and the nurses as they develop a treatment. Lord, give them clarity to know exactly what's going on. Father, I pray that the nurses and the doctors would have compassion on Virgil and Eleanor, and they would be just able to clearly communicate what's going on. Father, I pray for Eleanor. In a time when the world is spinning and her heart is fearful, she trusts in you. She needs your strength and she needs your peace. I pray that your spirit would be poured out upon her. I pray that the body of Christ in our church would embrace her with love and find tangible ways to love Eleanor and Virgil. They are a blessing to our church and we bring our brother before the throne of grace that he may find mercy. Father, and we also lift up this morning Virginia Patton. Lord, as she grieves the loss of her brother, Lord, that you would comfort her. These are difficult times when someone that you have shared your whole life with is no longer there. Lord, I pray that you would comfort her. I pray that Randy would um, be compassionate and loving towards his wife during these times to love her well. Father, we thank you that you will not snuff out a smoldering wick, a bruised reed you will not break. And we come to you this morning as smoldering wicks and bruised reeds, knowing that you will carry us. Father, we also lift up the children. The children this week who have started homeschool and virtual school and uh, traditional school, Lord, and as uh, they go, the, um, so many questions as they juggle virus concerns, as they worry about just learning and education and getting their work done, as, they, uh, as we fear their interaction with their peers. Lord, we entrust our children, their minds and their hearts to you. May we be faithful as parents to guide and love our children to protect them from those who seek to do them harm, to reach their hearts. But Father, they are a gift and we are stewards of them. And they belong to you and you love them. I pray that you would guide and protect them this week. Father, you are a good and gracious God and we need you. In the name that is above all names, we pray. Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Very good. 510 years ago, actually we go back, 510 years ago, Martin Luther in um, 
climbed the 28 marble steps to the Scala Scanta, which church tradition, Roman church tradition, tells us they were the steps that Jesus climbed to visit the Pontius Pilate. And those who climbed the steps, the Roman tradition says, on their knees and confess and receive Holy Communion will receive indulgences years off of purgatory from the Pope himself. Martin Luther, who was overwhelmed with uh, the weight of his sin and he could not get his sin off of him and the guilt of that, um, climbed those steps in earnest hope, but he, when he arrived at the top and there were multitudes of other pilgrims doing the same, he arrived at the top with a nagging doubt whether or not God was appeased by his works that he did. And he wondered if these things that he was doing was making any difference because he feared the righteousness of God and he knew he was unrighteous. But as Luther began to read the, the Gospels and Galatians and Romans, he came to realize that it is not what he does. It's not the works of penance and confession and, on, and, and uh, of, of contrition, but the righteousness of God comes is from a foreign place. It comes from heaven itself. And by trusting in the work of Christ, he would receive a righteousness that is not his own, and he could stand before God. When he realized that righteousness does not come from what we do, but who Christ is, it changed everything. And then shortly he posted on a, uh, a church door 95 articles of disputes that he wanted to argue with as custom has, as history tells us, he posted his 95 thesis and the world has never been the same. The realization of Luther 500 years ago was that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the things, the works of religion, of, of uh, good works, trying to earn our favor with God cannot do it. Mark is dealing with the same thing, where the religion has been commercialized and exploited and f trying to hoodwink the ordinary person and the powerful and the corrupt are using religion to, uh, uh, to uh, regain power and wealth and, and control in, the, in positions. And Jesus is appalled by what his temple has become. And I want you to know this morning that, that my big idea is this. Fruitless religion will not bring the sweetness of God's presence, but the bitterness of his judgment. Fruitless religion will not bring the sweetness of God's presence, but the bitterness of his judgment. And two lessons that we learn from these brief verses are, one, outward appearance cannot deceive the Lord. You can look good from the outside, and they can look at, man, they look great. They are very spiritual. 
But God is not deceived. He is not hoodwinked by your good works, by what you do. And empty worship cannot save you from the wrath of God. Empty worship cannot save you from the wrath of God. Ocean Park, holiness is not a commodity that we can buy and we can sell. And God will not idly stand by as people exploit his name and his word and his worship for carnal earthly gain. We must either follow Jesus or we will not know the sweetness of the presence of God where there is life and there is joy and there is pleasure forevermore. As we come into Mark chapter 11, as we read this, we're actually going to be looking at two stories, a story about a fig tree and the story about a temple. And you might think, what in the world does a fig tree have to do with a temple? Anna asked that last night. And really, we have to remember, we're coming back to one of our Markin sandwiches. And it's not a pastrami on rye. It's actually two sandwiches that are brought together on the story A and story B. Story A is used and split in half like the bread. And story B is slid in the middle like the meat. And the bread, story A, interprets the meat, story B. So we have to be able to understand what story A is saying. And then when we look at story B, it will be, aha, that's what a fruitless fig tree and a temple have to do with one another. So let's begin by looking at what they have to do together. And they actually have to do everything with the judgment of God. Notice uh, as we begin, outward appearances, I'm going to go back, outward appearances cannot deceive the Lord. Notice verse 12, it says, On the following day when Jesus came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from this tree again. And the disciples heard it. Now, this text has caused great consternation among many scholars. And they ask, how could Jesus curse a harmless fig tree? Isn't he acting uh, a little petulant? Isn't he acting a little mean and rash? This is very unbecoming of Jesus. It's like asking an apple tree to bring forth apples in the middle of February. It's not how they work. But many, um, but the really the reality is this miracle that Jesus performs that brings death upon this tree and not life. Um, there's more to the story than when we realize at first reading. Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder, who is also a contemporary of Jesus, uh, wrote this. He said, "Fig trees are the only trees that bring out their fruit first." before they bring their leaves out. Uh, uh, the Pattons at their house have two beautiful fig trees in the driveway, and I used to always come home, and when I was really hungry or before I let to work, I would go and get a handful of figs and enjoy them. I really looked forward to that. And you'll notice that the cycle of a fig tree starts, and I asked Randy, why do all the leaves fall off? And he's like, that's just what they do. And then they bring these little nodules out first, and those little green nodules are the little bitter green figs that will grow. 
And after the nodules are produced, the leaves come out in full bloom. And then after the leaves are out, the, the uh, figs grow, ripen and grow uh, robust and delicious. And my family didn't like them. So there were more for me to gorge myself in the driveway before I came in the house. But so Jesus, it says, is hungry as he has spent the evening. Uh, he went in the triumphant procession, went around the temple, and anticlimactically, Mark says, he looked around at everything with just his disciples. The crowds had in, um, instantaneously almost disappeared. And Jesus looks around at everything, goes home to Bethany, spends the night, and is coming back to the temple. And I imagine on his mind, he's hungry. He does not like what he saw. And quite honestly, he was appalled by what he saw. And he's hungry, and he sees in the distance as he's walking uh, with his disciples, he sees in, this, in the distance this lush green fig tree. And though it's probably six to eight weeks before the figs will be ripe and juicy and plenteous, he knows that there are nodules, those little green um, unripened figs will be on the tree and often in the Middle East people will snap those off and eat those by the handful. I can't imagine they're all that great. They're probably very bitter but it would be enough to abate his hunger and he comes up to this particular tree and sees it lush and green but completely devoid of fruit or I should say pre-ripened fruit. The fig tree looks healthy from afar because its green uh, leaves are green and lush. But when you get closer, its lack of fruit is revealing that the fig tree has a problem. It is poisoned and diseased and unhealthy to the root. And Jesus curses the tree. Verse 14, it says, And Jesus said to them, And no one ever eat from you again. Now, many people have said this is uh, this Jesus pretty much throws a tenter, temp, temper tantrum here because he's hungry and he doesn't get his way. But this is not a temper tantrum. It's a prophetic parable. Th this tree is a will serve to the disciples who are listening as a visual representation of the judgment of God. Remember the Mark and Sandwich story A interprets story B, or the bread interprets the meat. That's a very theological phrase. The bread interprets the meat, right there. I paid a lot of money in seminary for that. Uh, Jesus, remember, he's, he has the temple in his mind, and he sees this tree that from the outside looks healthy and green, but the inside it is rotten into the roots and they're diseased, and Jesus curses it. And this is not a hocus-pocus, Harry uh, Potter, curse of Macbeth, curse of King Tut kind of curse. But when the curses of Scripture are, they're, they're, what they are, they're not magic, but they're the, the declaration of God. The solemn declaration of an almighty God saying, this tree has fallen short of my design. The curse on the fig tree is God's formal declaration that though this tree looks good, it is diseased and it displeased him and it must die. And it will die. A few verses later in 20 and 21, after they have left the temple, and it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw, the disciples saw the fig tree withered to its roots. 
And Peter remarked and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. Yes, the declaration of God who sees through the veneer and the foliage of worthless religion reveals and knows what is inside and calls forth what the reality is. Ocean Park, the Lord is not mocked. He sees past our outward appearances to our inmost being with perfect clarity. I remember when I was a little boy, my mom used to tell me, you can lie to me or you can trick me and you can trick daddy, um, grandpa, uh, but you can't trick God. And I don't know that was a, that, that was a good parenting thing because I knew, um, I knew that I could pull, hoodwink my parents, but God is always watching. And they, all of us, we may look like, uh, we may have a good reputation, we may be moral people, but it's not our reputation, but it's our character. It's what on, that's inside that counts. And Jesus sees through the foliage and the well-manicured lives of moral people, of religious people, and he sees the rottenness and the disease in the heart. And his judgment is right and true. J.C. Ryle put it this way when discussing this. He says, there must be fruit in our hearts and fruit in our lives. The fruit of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we'll see this next week. Jesus ex ex elaborates on this. We need faith in Christ and repentance and forgiveness. And true holiness in our conversion, without such fruits, these, are, they're, they're, these a profession of Christianity will only sink us lower into hell. We can say all the right words, and we can do all the right things. But if our heart is diseased and sick, and we cling to our morality rather than clinging to the grace of Christ, the declaration of God says... This is accursed. Brothers and sisters, we need to heed the living parable of the fig tree because fruitless religion will not bring the sweetness of God's presence but the bitterness of his judgment. Knowing that because outward religion will not, cannot be, we cannot deceive the Lord with outward religion, but also knowing as we look at the temple, out, empty worship cannot save us from God's wrath. Notice in verses 15 and 16, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the table, the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus entered the court of the Gentiles. And if you want to, sometimes we really don't understand. I, I didn't realize we were going to have a TV. I would have put the picture up here behind me. Uh, but it's, um, the court of the Gentiles was a large, sprawling, uh, stoned area, a pavilion, courtyard, if you will, with uh, walls on the outside and the temple was in the middle. If you were to think of our church property and you were to put a, um, a fence around our church property and you have the building here, uh, that would be equivalent, the parking lot and the grass, that would be like the court of the Gentiles where Gentiles were allowed to come in these areas. 
And then you had, you would go in, into the, the inner te- the courts, and it was called the Court of the Women, where Jewish women and men were able to come in, and that would be like our sanctuary. And then it was the Holy of Holies, which would be back here, that would be like the nursery, and, and especially my office, the Holy of Holies. Uh, that's a joke. Um, but that would be the place that the presence of God dwelt, that only once a year the high priest would go in with an offering um, for, uh, for, on behalf of the sins of the people. But the outside would be the court of the Gentiles. And when I think about it in my 21st century thinking, when I think of a courtyard surrounding a temple, I'm thinking of serene and quiet where people can meditate and pray and just really draw close to the Lord. But the reality was the exact opposite. If the county fair and the New York Stock Exchange were to have a baby, this would be the court of the Gentiles. It was the sights and the sounds and the smells of the temple would have been incredible. First, you think about there were all throughout the outside of the court of the Gentiles, there were um, people selling livestock, uh, lambs and, and bulls and all kinds of animals for people who had traveled at long distances where bringing a lamb some 300 miles through terrain would just not be uh, 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 possible. They would be able to come to the temple and the service, they would buy a lamb and be able to bring that lamb and sacrifice that lamb. These people were providing a service for genuine worshipers. And then you had the uh, census tax that any man of 21 or older had to pay. It was a half shekel, but you could not use a foreign currency where there are idolatrous images of foreign gods and emperors. They would have to get a local half shekel to be able to pay that. Well, you just can't be just swapping half shekels for foreign currency. You have to have a handling fee, the FCC service charge that's on your phone bills. There is a small service fee for being able to do that. And so the money changers would sit there and we're, we're helping you worship the Lord. We'll swap a dollar or two for you. Then you would also have other miscellaneous tables of people that were selling uh, pigeons and wine and salt, depending on the type of offering you had come that day to be able to do. Josephus, the Jewish historian, um, estimated that during the Passover in AD 65, which is, you know, 20, 30 years after Jesus had gone, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple during Passover. So you imagine the amount of animals and smells. It was like um, the 4-H on the stock exchange. It, uh, it was uh, incredible. The temple was big business, and it grieved the heart of Jesus because the presence of the Lord was being exploited for personal gain. People were using God to get what they really wanted power and wealth and money and influence and the mercy of God that brought his people into presence was being turned into a money-making circus and Jesus vehemently opposed it you can imagine Jesus comes in with his uh, disciples and he begins he sees 
He saw it the night before and it probably affected and he's seething and he curses the tree as he gets closer and closer and he can hear the animals. He can smell the dung and he he's, hears the, the, the changes and the, and the shouts and the screams like the, the, the stock exchange and he burns with anger that the Lord's presence, his father's house is being turned into such a circus and in this little corner of the, the, gent, the court of the Gentiles probably not a big fuss like we think it was this corner he begins to push out the buyers and sellers and he kicks over the tables of the money changers and he won't allow people to come in and go and peddle their products but even in the midst of the hustle and bustle his protest and his visual parable was unseen by the world that was there but his indictment on the empty religion of the temple was true. And notice verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, to his disciples, assumedly, or those that were uh, accompanying him, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, where it says that all the glory of the God will be made known, and those who were once excluded from salvation because they were not Jewish, or they were not clean, or they hadn't followed ritual laws, they would be included, foreigners and eunuchs and exiles and Gentiles, all the nations would be able to know the goodness of God's presence, not just ethnic Jews. The heart of Jesus is it desires all nations to come to know the presence and the joy and the life and the pleasure that is found at the right hand of God. However, rather than being a lighthouse that drew the nations to drink the sweetness of God's goodness, it was a hideout for thieves and scoundrels and extortioners. Notice um, verse 17. Jesus, quoting from um, um, Jeremiah 7 that Scott read, you have made it a den of robbers. The words of Jeremiah are a stinging indictment on the religion of the people of that day. And quite honestly, I wish I had more time. I believe such words are a stinging indictment of the evangelical church today that has sold out for power and influence and have betrayed the gospel. A den of robbers is not where robbers commit the crime. That's on the roads. That's in the dark places. A den of robbers is where the, the thieves come and find shelter and they found safety and they found rest. And what is their hideout? What is their den? The place that was once the dwelling place of the almighty God of creation is now the hideout for the wicked. Like the fruitless fig tree, the temple is a fruitless tree that has rotten roots. It is powerless to save, and it only inflicts eternal damage on all those who trust in it. Now, this is not an indictment on the Jewish people, per se, this is a, an indictment on the religious system, the Sanhedrin, and the chief priests that are exploiting the worship of God, that are um, causing obstacles and barriers to the nations, for all the nations of the world. As Habakkuk says, my glory will be a, 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 across all the earth. All the earth will know that I am God. 
because the greed and the ruthlessness of the empty, false religion, it had become an indictment and a barrier for the nations to know the name of the one true God. Ocean Park, empty worship is powerless to save us. The Lord is able to see past the lush foliage of external religion and see what is truly in our hearts. You can say all the right words. You can go through all the motions. You can do all the right ministries. You can know all the words of all the songs, of the creeds, of the old, old songs and the new ones. You can find and be a champion at sword drill. But the Lord is not fooled by your church attendance, your tithes and offerings, your knowledge of the Bible, and your willingness to volunteer at church. You can walk the aisle countless times. You can pray the prayer every time the minister says. You can get baptized and you can get rebaptized at every church and every tradition and every denomination, one time or three times. You can take communion and you can be active in ministry. It cannot save you. Only the person and work of Jesus can save you. That's good news. That's good news to those who have tender consciences. The people who worry, have I done too much bad things that I need to go and try to do more good things to do that. People with tender consciousness that, that know their hearts and they know their struggles with sin. The good news for you is there is no sin that you have done that Jesus' death has not washed away. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed it white as snow. For those of you who worry, have I done enough? No, you haven't. But Jesus has. And we can trust in him. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was talking to you. I have paid the full measure of your sin. Now trust in me and follow me and bear the fruit of Christ-likeness, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. To those with a tender conscience, trust in Jesus. You can never do enough, but Jesus has. And those of you who are self-righteous moralists, who feel, I've done it all, You're like the publican who said, God, thank you for not making me like a tax collector, like them, like those people. I'm not like those people. Whether that be your political opponents, whether it be that guy at work, may it be your crazy uh, uncle in your family Thanksgiving get-togethers, your self-righteous moralism to make yourselves better than those people are worthless and that you are not safe. Stop trying to be your own savior or it will destroy you. You cannot do enough. Your self-righteous moral foliage does not fool the almighty God of heaven. Ocean Park, the Lord can see through 
the, the, the foliage of a well-manicured life who doesn't need anybody. Brothers and sisters, we need Jesus. And until we come to Jesus like a humble child and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, we ne- will not follow Jesus. When Jesus looks at your life, will he de- what will he find? Will he declare that your heart is diseased by self-righteousness and self-love? Or will he declare that your heart, that you are seeking to know Jesus? Will he find faith in your heart? Will he find trust in Jesus, of Jesus in your heart? Will he find a desire to be like Jesus in thought, in word, and in deed? Because remember, as Jesus tells us, fruitless religion will not bring the sweetness of God's presence, but the bitterness of his wrath. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you that there is nothing that we can do. No works of penance. No good works that have been formulated in church history from high churches of cathedrals to low churches in storefronts. There is nothing that we can do to make up and atone for our sin. Only the grace of God, by trusting in Christ alone, can we be saved. And I pray that we would stop depending on our own ability, our own morality, our own goodness, and trust in Christ alone. In his precious and holy name we pray. Amen.